You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. So eight weeks ago on July, or June the 10th rather, a kid named Mateo Walinda, probably eight years old, he made his debut with the flying Walindas by walking on a tight wire at Circus Flora in St. Louis. He is the eighth generation of the flying Walindas. Now, you may be asking, who is the flying Walindas? Well, they are a circus act, and they are daredevil stunt performers. But they're most known for performing high wire, or uh, the, yeah, the high wire acts. So Carl Walinda, the founder, was born in Germany in 1906 uh, into a, a circus family, and he began performing at the age of six. And in 1922, uh, he put together his own act when John Ringling discovered him in Cuba and invited him to join the Ringling Brothers uh, and Barnum and Bailey Circus. In 1928, they debuted with Ringling Brothers at the Madison Square Garden in New York City, and they performed their tight wire act without a net because it had been lost in transit. And the crowd gave them a standing ovation. Well, when you get a standing ovation, um, that's like a drug, right? And so they decided they would continue to do their act without a net. Unfortunately, several Walindas have met untimely deaths through the years, including Carl, the one who started uh, this group. On March the 22nd, 1978, he fell from the wire and died at the age of 73. Nick Walinda, in a documentary that I saw about the flying Walinda, said this, we don't use safety nets like a other acts. A safety net is a distraction because you know if it's there if you fall. We know we can't fall unless we die. Well, thankfully, this is antithetical to the life of faith because we do fall, right? We fall every day, in fact. It may not be something significant, like some kind of premeditated sin, though those things happen sometimes, unfortunately. Sometimes it may just be a careless word that is spoken, but we fall every day. And yet, by the grace of God, we have a net in and through Jesus Christ. I think that's what the psalmist in Psalm 37 was referring to when he said, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he falls, he will not be utterly cast down because the Lord upholds him in his way. Well, Abram, at this point, Abraham now, we know him as Abraham. His name has been changed. He has fallen. Sarai has fallen time and time again. And God has continued 
to come to him, not by any merit of Abraham, but because of the, the mercy of God and the promises of God, the covenantal commitment of God, and has said time and time again, I am your safety net. And even though you are weak, even though you are fragile, even though your faith is volatile and small, I am your net. And that's what he has promised, and that's what we see promised in chapter 17 at the ratification of this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, you see, in this particular chapter, we won't look at all of them, 12 times God says, I will. I will do something. So, for instance, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. I will establish my covenant. Verse 8, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your soldiernings. I will be your God. Tonight we see, I will bless her, that is Sarah. I will give you a son. I will bless her. Twelve times we see that in this chapter. And we saw last week as well that it's because of God's grace, God's mercy in his covenant promises. And we saw in chapter 15, it's, it's such a promise that God will absorb the debt himself if his people break their oath to him. And that is intended by reflecting on that, not to uh, give us a license to sin. It, it serves to soften the ordinarily natural self-will and uh, self-absorbed heart. Now, we tend to think the opposite. We think if we give them too much grace, it will lead to lawless living. And in a perverted understanding of grace, that's true. How many times have we been out on Thursday night and some kid who is inebriated out of his mind will tell me, I am a Christian. Uh, I, I prayed to receive Christ so many years ago in a, in, a, in a Baptist church and I am a Christian. That person may be a Christian, uh, but he certainly is living in rebellion at that moment. But it very well may be that he really never experienced saving grace. Uh, there is that kind of perverted understanding where we love the grace of God more than we love the God of grace. Now, that's a perverted understanding of grace, but that's the way we can sometimes think. Jude, in fact, deals with that. In Jude verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, note, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see that? They pervert, here's what they'll do. Eternal security, once saved, always saved. I prayed to receive Christ, and now I have a blank check. I can do what I want to do. That's exactly what Jude is, is condemning there in that passage. Now, how do we know if it's God's grace? Or, or rather said, how do we know if it's the God of grace or the grace of God that we love most? Our response to it. That's the answer to that question. Um, Abraham and his wife, Sarai, her name will be changed in our passage tonight, um, they show us, even with all their imperfections, what it means to love the God of grace more 
than the grace of God. And they've come to understand their need for grace because how many times have they fallen? You know, Jesus will say later, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has forgiven much loves much. Now, if you've been forgiven, there's no one who exists who's been forgiven little. But Jesus recognizes there are people who don't recognize how much they have been forgiven. Abram, Abraham and Sarai recognize it at this point. Now, last time we saw the Savior of the covenant, El Shaddai, and we also saw the seal of the covenant or the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Uh, In the second part of this passage, starting in verse 15, we see the son of the covenant. So look with me in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife... You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. There's one of those I will statements. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So here we see a reiteration of God's promise to Abraham. But here, Sarai is given a new name. Now, the fact that she had offered her handmaid uh, to Abraham indicates that she had come to believe that she herself in her old age would have nothing to do with the covenant that God was making with Abraham. And that's why she folded. She we just saying, I will wait for you. She had not waited for the Lord as she should have. Now, Sarai will now be called Sarai. When God gives you a new name, he's, he's giving you really a new identity. He's doing something. Um, now, interestingly, Sarai and Sarah are both forms of the same name. A name which either means princess or heroine. And she was going to be the heroine of her people. So whether she's the princess of her people or heroine of her people, uh, whatever that name means. Uh, Verse 16 tells us how. Notice, I will bless her. I will give you a son by her. So she's going to be the instrument, the human instrument by which these covenant promises come to fruition, and she, notice, is going to be the mother of nations. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is that the ultimate seed, as we know, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and all the nations are going to be, by grace through faith, come to him and and be united into one um, kingdom, if you will, Uh, a holy nation, as Peter describes them. And she is going to be the one by which this comes. Now think about this. This woman, this should encourage us all. This woman had sinned significantly. All right? But you can't sin out sin the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And so this woman has sinned significantly, and God is coming to her to forgive her and to reaffirm her in his purposes for her. 
And that reveals God's tender mercy to us. Again, when we read this, this does not give us a ticket to sin. It should melt our hearts. Just like when a a parent um, loves you unconditionally, if you have any kind of sanity about you, you, you recognize, I can't abuse that kind of love. I, I need to allow that love to transform me. And that's what Moses is intending here. And then notice at the end of verse 16, she will be a mother of kings. Now, now this tells us something. When Israel asked the Lord, asked Samuel for a king, in one sense, that was not wrongheaded. Uh, they, they would have known their Bible, that kings would come from their matriarch. The reason it was wrongheaded was because of the reason they wanted a king. They, they wanted a king like the other nations. Uh, they weren't trusting in Yahweh to fight their battles. They wanted a king that even looked like a king, a king that looked like all the kings of the other nations. And that's why Paul, or or rather uh, Samuel, describes Saul as tall. That's not just scratching our our curiosity there. Um, He's tall because he looks exactly the king that they would have been very proud of because they had turned from Yahweh into idolatry. But yet we see here it was God's plan all along for them to have a king. Kings will come from you. Now, what is Abram's or Abraham's response to this? So we've seen the son of the covenant. Now we see submission to the covenant. Notice verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face. Now we've already seen it. In verse 3, when God reveals himself as El Shaddai and reaffirms the covenant with him and Abraham, in verse 3 it says, Abraham fell on his face. And here again in verse 17, Abraham fell on his face. Throughout Scripture, this act of prostration reflects submission. He's falling on his face. This is an act of submission. And yet he doesn't, per- he doesn't do it perfectly. We've got a song, Perfect Submission, right? Uh, Fanny Crosby. Well, this is not perfect submission. He fell on his face and he laughed. Now, there is a kind of laughter that is a reflection of joy. And maybe there is some joy mixed in this, but we see This laughter is in part because of a faulty faith. His faith is still not perfected. Uh, He he laughed and he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? So again, that laughter is not a reflection of, of perfect, joyful faith, that he is still struggling with, with the promises of God, even though he is a man of faith. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, this is impossible, so let me remind you of the solution. He says, Ishmael might live before you. So, (laughs) 
it, it's really hard to know all that's going through Abraham's mind in his laughter. But, but it's very clear that he has resigned himself to never having a son with Sarah. All right? But he has resigned himself to seeing God's plan fulfilled in Ishmael. After all, Abraham would have loved Ishmael. And I would submit that he loved Ishmael as much as he would love Isaac. At this point, Isaac hasn't even been conceived, which means he likely loves Ishmael more than he, or he loves Ishmael more than he loves the thought of a son that hasn't even been conceived. It makes sense that he would want Ishmael to be the child of promise. And so God says to him, no, this is not going to be my plan. I, I have a grander plan for you than you could ever imagine. And I would say that's always the case with God's people. Now, we may allow the culture to form ideas of what we think a, a prosperous life is and a successful life is. But let me just say this. If God's plan for you is to be a, a ditch digger, it would be a demotion for you to be the president of the United States. His plans are always greater than anything than we could ever imagine. So Abraham's problem here was that even though he believed God, read Romans 4. Paul, in his inspired text there, reflects on Paul, uh, the, uh, Abraham's faith. Read Hebrews 11. We also see a great chapter there on his faith. Though he believed God, it's at this point, he, God is still too small to him. We're reading, we're, we're looking in the mirror here, okay? Um, and God is saying, my plan is better than the plan you have for yourself. But I think it's also interesting here how comfortable with our substitutes for God's plan for our lives that we can fall into. We are very, we can become very comfortable with substitutes for God's plan for our lives. So we like, here's what we do. We like to plan out our lives and then we ask God to put a rubber stamp on it. And oftentimes we're compromising all the while. We're compromising all the while. So you may get into a, a relationship with the opposite sex. And instead of consecrating that relationship to the Lord, you do it your way. And then you ask God to rubber stamp his approval on it. We, we're always looking for ways uh, to substitute for what God's good and perfect will for us is. That's what we see here. And you'll remember he's done this before in chapter 15 when God had come to reiterate his promises to Abram. He said to the Lord, Lord, the heir of my house is going to be Eliezer of Damascus, a servant born amongst my people. That's going to be my heir. And the Lord said, no, a son is going to be born from you who is going to be your heir. Remember, I am El Shaddai. He is telling Abram this or Abraham this. And so Abraham is frail, but God is El Shaddai. Sarah is 90 years old and barren, but God 
is El Shaddai. Verse 19. And God said, no, but your Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name. Here's the first time we read this name in the Bible, Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So Abraham, let's, let's just keep the, the idea of this narrative. There was a seed promised that will crush the head of the serpent. And we have traced that seed uh, through um, Seth and Noah and Shem and Abraham. And now we learn that this unfolding plan to crush the serpent and save God's people is going to come through this son named Isaac. Now, what does his name mean? It means he laughs. That's what it means. Now, um, it's a response in part to the fact that Sarah has laughed. We saw that. Um, or, or Abraham has laughed here in chapter 17, and we're going to see Sarah laugh in chapter 18. But I also think there's some irony here because Abraham believes that there's no way they could have a biological child, and I believe God is the one who's going to have the last laugh with this son, Isaac. He always has the last laugh. Well, that brings us to the last part of this passage. We've seen the, uh, the son of the covenant, and uh, here we come, we've seen the submission to the covenant, and finally we see the selectivity of the covenant. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. So it's selective. It, it, the, the covenant and salvation is coming through that covenant. Again, John 14, 6, I am the truth and the way and the life. No one comes to the Father because there's a, select, a selectivity to, to how God is going to save humanity. And it's going to come through the seed of Abraham and ultimately it will find its, its end in, in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you. Get this. At this time next year. So Ishmael will be blessed, but the covenant is selective. It is only with Isaac and his posterity. And, and here, God gives Abraham, this is such an important point for us. He gives Abraham the no of grace, the no of grace. He said no to his offer, in other words. This was a prayer. Abraham said, how, how about Ishmael? No. That was God's answer to Abraham's prayer. Do you know, there was a great theologian one time, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Garth Brooks, not a great theologian. <laughs> but actually, he does answer the prayer. He answers the prayer, no. And it was the wisdom of God prevailing over the finite, fallen wisdom 
of Abraham. Thank God for no. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but all of you could raise your hand and, and praise the Lord for the no's that he has given you through the years as you have prayed and cried out for something that you thought you needed. Well, we see this here. Um, but I want you to notice as well that he is blessing Ishmael, but it's a secular blessing because it's a blessing outside this covenant. There's no indication of spiritual blessing given here. Now, let me qualify that. That's not to say that Ishmael's descendants, that some of them would be saved because we know that's the case. But they would have to come through the seed of Abraham and Isaac. You see my point? Uh, it is through that covenant salvation comes. And so God will have a people even among uh, the Ishmaelites, but they have to come on God's terms through Isaac and through the seed of Abraham, all right? But here he is promising some kind of prosperity with Ishmael. Let me just say this. Prosperity that comes to those who are not of faith is very dangerous because what happens is a person who's not depending on the Lord and all of a sudden they're, they're prospering in their circumstances, it oftentimes can confirm them in unbelief. It can confirm them in self-sufficiency, all right? And so these kind of, the prosperity that oftentimes the unbeliever experiences may end up not being a blessing after all. It may confirm unbelief. Well, in verses 23 to 27, we see Abraham's response to the message. Again, he is so much like us. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But we see here his obedience that even though his faith is not perfected, he does believe the promises of El Shaddai. Verse 23, then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. This is not to be off color. This is radical obedience. These are full-blown adults. And we'll get to Genesis 34 when we see Shimei who violates Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and he wants to marry her. And so the sons of Jacob say, okay, you can marry her, but you got to be circumcised first, you and all your men. And it so incapacitated them that they were unable to defend themselves when Jacob's sons came in with the sword and slashed them all up. This is radical obedience. The pain, uh, the vulnerability, they're in a land filled with Canaanites. This is radical obedience. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. And so Abraham believes God's promises. And one of the evidences that we actually believe is that we obey. 
we have read tonight or sang tonight two songs about waiting on the Lord and we sang one song about the faithfulness of Lord. That is perfect for what we see here in this passage. Uh, We see uh, Abraham trusting in the promises of God. We're going to see in chapter 18 the fruition of waiting on the Lord and, and we see God being faithful to those who are not always faithful. Uh, G.C. Alders, in his commentary on Genesis, says this, Naturally, we all wonder why God made Abraham wait so long for the fulfillment of the promise. Undoubtedly, he wanted to reveal something to Abraham and to his people of all time. They must know beyond all question and all doubt that God's promises are absolutely trustworthy. No matter how impossible the fulfillment of these promises might appear from human perspectives, God does the impossible and he keeps his promises. Abraham's history reveals with unmistakable clarity that God's word is always trustworthy. Amen? God fulfills his promises not because they are reasonable by human standards, but because God is God and his word is true and absolutely reliable. And as we conclude, let me just finish this message with this thought. Kings did come from Sarah. At the end of Genesis, as Jacob is blessing his sons, he takes the unlikely son Judah. If you want to know how unlikely he is, read Genesis 38 sometime. And here's what he says to Judah. In Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That's kingly language. A kingly scepter, a kingly staff shall not depart from Judah. Judah will be the seed. This is the Judah will be the, the one by whom this seed will continue, seed promise will continue to unfold. Balaam would later cry. Numbers 24, 17. By the way, Balaam was a false prophet and he was hired to curse Israel. But every time he sought to curse Israel, God intervened and he ended up blessing Israel. And one of these remarkable prophecies about the coming Messiah, I've wanted to preach a sermon before, a Christmas sermon from a false prophet, but I thought that would be too scandalous. In Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, that's kingly language, shall arise out of Israel. When David came, God promised in 2 Samuel, by the way, what tribe was David from? The tribe of Judah. That's exactly right. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Doesn't mean there weren't uninterrupted. It doesn't mean it would be uninterrupted because we certainly know that when Israel went into exile, there was no Davidic king. And so God's people during that time, what did they do? They trusted that God would be true to the promise in spite of what they saw. 400 years after David, Ezekiel recorded these words. In chapter 34, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. Now, David's been dead 400 years. 
but it will be a son of David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Isaiah prophesied, chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Prince of Peace, who would establish an endless government and rule on David's throne. Zechariah prophesied in chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now, Zechariah is writing at a time when, when Judah had just come back into the land after 70 years of, of Babylonian captivity, and, and the structure of the temple had been rebuilt, but they were discouraged. They were being oppressed by the surrounding uh, peoples, and there was apathy in the camp. And so what does Zechariah do? He preaches the gospel, and that's the gospel he preaches. There's one who's coming, and you need to rejoice. Your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey. Again, Israel continued to look, and they continued to look for five centuries. And on Palm Sunday... Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey and those crowds shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. So unlike the flying Walindas, we want, indeed we need a net, don't we? We need a net every day. Not to give us a ticket to sin, but be, because we do sin. We have sins that we commit every day, sins of weakness, we might judge a person. We may have a negative thought about a person. We may say something ill about a person that is ungodly and does not reflect the, the character of our Lord Jesus Christ or his law. We need a net every day. Like Abram, we fall and we fall every day. And, and God comes to us and says, I have a net even though you are weak and fragile, even though your faith is so volatile, I have that safety net. But here's the question as we close. How can he be a safety net for sinners? This is the question we must be able to answer. How can he be a safety net for sinners without impugning his character and his law that sin must be judged? That's the question. How can he be a safety net? How can he uh, overlook our sins as we read this morning in, this, in Psalm 103? How can, he, how can he refuse to regard our iniquities as we have committed them? And here's the answer. The king takes the fall for us. The king uh, has the judgment fall on him. That king who will come from Abraham and Sarah. That is a glorious gospel. And it came because Abraham and Sarah, though they did not do it perfectly, they, as we sang tonight, they waited on the Lord. And he is good to those who wait upon him. But maybe you recognize, I don't know this king. Now here's why we need a king. I want you to think about this. The king is not just a king, he's a prophet and a priest. We've talked about the way, the truth, and life. I've thought about that this week. Adam and the musicians come forward. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. You know that those three 
words correspond to the three offices that Jesus undertook for us in our salvation. He is the way. That is, he is our priest. He, he, makes us, he makes a way for us as our priest. He is the truth. He's our prophet. He reveals to us the will of God for our salvation. And he is the life. He is our king. He overcomes death for us. And he brings life to us through his own resurrection life. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Why do we need a prophet? Because we're ignorant. Why do we need a priest? Because we're guilty. Why do we need a king? Because we're weak and helpless. And we've seen tonight that king is coming from a woman who is a lot like us. We believe, but we, we need the Lord to help our unbelief. Pray for that tonight as we, as we sing. But maybe you recognize tonight, you don't know that king. You don't know that prophet. You don't know that priest. Uh, you are alienated from God and, and you need to be reconciled to him. And that prophet, priest, and king comes to you and he offers you forgiveness, not because you've merited it. He offers you forgiveness because he merited it for you. He, he secured salvation for you by living the life you could not live, dying the death that you deserve. Won't you come to him tonight as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.